Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Mark Sinatra acquired an HR outsourcing company as the target of a traditional search fund. Over the next decade, he tripled the size of that company, then sold the business to a private equity firm. And then for the last couple of years, Mark has been investing in search funds himself. That first acquisition was back in 2008. So this is someone who not only was successful as a searcher, but has been in and around search funds for 13 or 14 years. There's been a lot of evolution in the search fund world in that time, not least of which in the popularity of the model. So Mark's perspective on traditional search funds is a great one to get. Enjoy my conversation with Mark Sinatra. Mark Sinatra, thanks for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Will Smith, thank you for having me. You acquired an HR outsourcing firm back in 2008. It was the target of a traditional search fund. So you had done a search fund right out of grad school, out of an MBA program. And this was at a time when search funds weren't as widely known as they are today. So um, you did a search fund then, you acquired a business, ran and grew that business, exited it, and now you are investing in other searchers. So you really have seen the entire life cycle from being a searcher to a successful acquisition and exit to now investing in searchers. So lots to, to hear from you, Mark. But um, before we dive in, why don't you set the stage for us? Give us two minutes on you pre-2007, 2008. What was it that led you to want to do a traditional search fund search fund, and go out and buy a business? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank, thank you all. And then just one one minor add to the to the background. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm I actually got back into the HR outsourcing space you know, recently, and I've been running a, another HR outsourcing firm called Aspen HR. So okay, I'm I'm doing that, and then I'm also uh, doing some investing as well. You know, in search funds. You okay. know, back in 20, 2007, 2008, I think for for me, you know, it, it's you know for a lot of folks you know that, that attend MBA programs, it's a period of deep learning and reflection, right? And, and you're, you're trying new things, you're learning about new things. And all the while you're, you're trying to think of, well, you know, what's, what's my, my path, right? Like, what am I going to do long-term and what can I do short-term to help me get to that long-term goal? And, you know, when I first heard about the search fund concept, the summer after my first year um, of business school, it, it really kind of instantly clicked in my mind that it, it was essentially what I was looking for, but I just mm-hmm. had no idea it was called a, a search fund. I had no idea that there was, you know, a, a path, right. And, and a path that was created, right. By, by several other search fund entrepreneurs prior to me that had successes that had challenges, but all the while, you know, we're able to really create this path of entrepreneurship to acquisition. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, my thought process back then was, you know, the search fund model was really the perfect fit for my career goals. You know, I knew I, I wanted to eventually run a company and I saw the search fund model as the direct, most direct path for me to do that. Um, with the exception, of course, of, of starting a company, but starting a company for me and, and what I knew about my skill set and my skill gaps right? And my risk tolerance, I didn't feel like starting a company was really the right option for me at that time. And that the search fund model really checked all the boxes in terms of my goals, 
my and my risk tolerance. So great. And what was it about um, building that that you thought like didn't appeal? Was it that you just didn't have an idea right at the moment, or you just starting from absolute scratch was you were more of a you know as they say like a one to ten person rather than a zero to one sort of thing? Yeah, I I thought like well first I I didn't have an idea that I was like just uber passionate about that I thought that okay well I, I need to start a company around this idea and execute it. Uh, and then in conjunction with that, frankly, I just didn't have the financial risk tolerance at that time to to really kind of devote and and kind of go all in, you know, on on the startup uh, uh, concept. And so, of course, there's there's risk, you know, associated with the traditional search fund path. But but I felt like the the somewhat part of that risk was mitigated in the sense that you know you're searching for up to to two years. Yeah. And at least you're, you're you are paying yourself, right? Uh, a salary, you know, it's a below market salary, but at least it's, it's certainly something that you can uh, uh, more than live off of. Right. Yeah. So, so I really kind of uh, felt, you know, much more comfortable with that model. Okay. So tell us about the search. What did, what did that look like? Did you have a lot of interns working with you? Did you, you didn't have a partner as I understand it, you were solo. So t- tell me, tell me what that yeah. looked like. No, actually, so I ended up, uh, I did have a partner for for the search and even for a portion of the operating period as well. Ah. And I was actually, yeah, I was actually a classmate and, and friend of mine from from business school. And so uh, I conducted the search out of New York and my partner, he was actually out of out of uh, Minneapolis. Ah. And so, so it, it was actually kind of a, a nice setup where, you know, even though we weren't searching together like in person per se, um, you know, I think we had like a good, like kind of complementary geographic coverage there. Um, in addition, you know, we, ha- we had some interns, uh, as, as well. Um, now this was kind of, this was like, I would say in the early days of, of interns. Right. And, and so there were a lot of, we were, we were learning as we, as we went, honestly, in terms of how we would kind of best structure the internship and, and, uh, and who was the ideal intern, right. If it was a, MBA student or an undergrad um, or none of the above, right? Um, so I think they they were helpful to us uh, to some degree in terms of like you know reviewing industries and and uh, you know putting together lists. But nowadays, uh, not to jump to to you know future question. Nowadays, you know I find that the interns and internship programs are are much more structured and yeah. robust. So. Yeah. Well, and, and just in terms of the search itself, the interns and otherwise. Did like had you taken a course? Like, was there even a course offered in search at your MBA program? You were at you were at Wharton, right? University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a course called uh, Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition that really focused on, I would say, like business acquisition 101. Um, you know, for typically, I would say smaller companies. You know, companies sub five million in revenue, sub one million in in, in EBITDA. Um, and I think some of the lessons from that course were, were certainly helpful, but, you know, I think the, I mean, there wasn't a lot of content that was specifically tailored, right. To the traditional search fund model. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, when you're doing a traditional search, right. Like, you know, the, the companies you're looking at, you know, most searchers, the floors really, you know, one and a half and. In EBITDA and you know could be up to five in EBITDA, maybe even yeah. higher, right? So, 
it's the the competition for those deals is is far greater and so you know that's one key difference is like that that you I, we just kind of picked up as we went right and you just have to be much more kind of crafty and creative you know in terms of sourcing those those types of deals um so you know there's the Stanford primer you know at that time um you know that that was certainly helpful and then and then you know it's always been a collegial community right so i found like the the searchers i was able to kind of find online um, and talk to, you know, about, you know, what the lessons learned uh, about, you know, their search were, were actually very helpful. But yeah. to your point, back then, it's not like there were, there were a ton of searchers, right, that you could easily find and, and leverage. So it was really a lot of learning as, as, as we went. Yeah. I, and, and there wasn't as much of a playbook, I don't think, although maybe in, in the Stanford primary there, there is. But as I've started talking to traditional searchers now, I realize more and more that they're traditional searchers of today, there really is a formula almost to follow. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful. As you said, it's still very competitive, very hard to find those companies that fit the bill. Um, but it, the, it kind of, uh, yeah, there, there's a, there's a, a, a process and step-by-step kind of uh, way to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think, listen, I, I think it's, I, I think it's great that, that, you know, that exists and, you know, cause that, that's really one of the biggest challenges of the search, right, is you're putting forth all of this effort into a binary outcome, right? You, you buy yeah. a business or you don't buy a business. And it's like, you now if you're, if you're putting forth all this effort and you're working tirelessly to do it and you're 18 months in and you still haven't achieved that outcome, like, how do you know if you're being successful or not, yeah. right? And, and so there's a lot of latency built in, in terms of, you know, you get that LOI signed one day, right? And then you're moving, right? And then you go to the purchasing room. But if it's just, it's, that is the biggest challenge of the process is really to kind of keep yourself mentally kind of engaged and, and kind of optimistic, you know, into, into, you know, achieving the ultimate goal. Yeah. Yeah. So how long did it take you guys to find staff one? Uh, it was about, it was 18 months. Oh yeah. From beginning. <laughs> so to you end. were speaking from exam, uh, from experience on the 18 months thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, from beginning to end 18 months, uh, yeah. found the deal about 13 months in, and then, you know, basically like a five month period, right. To, uh, to ultimately, uh, transact, um, you know, found the business, uh, through call essentially kind of a, a industry consultant river guide, okay. um, yep. you know, great person, great resource who was really, I think, like well networked within the sector, um, you know, and the industry appealed to us, right? I mean, the the HR outsourcing industry um, back then and even through today has a lot of like similarities. It's changed in some ways, but a lot of similarities in terms of recurring revenue, fragmentation, industry growth, um, you know, nice uh, uh, industry, you know, tailwind. So, I mean, I think like what what we saw in it back then, again, I think too, too good to be still exists today. And so it was a little bit of an industry focused search is how we uh, were able to come up with the deal. So can you tell me more about the outsour- HR outsourcing uh, as an industry and, and what appealed to you about it and, and how it's changed? And is it something that you still recommend for searchers? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, the short answer is, I mean, I, I absolutely recommend uh, the industry for searchers to 
to uh, uh, really uh, uh, sift through uh, because it's got some fantastic attributes. Like I said, I mean, I think you know the the recurring revenue nature of it, the scalability of the model, the fragmentation allows for both organic and, and potentially inorganic growth as well. Um, and I mean, if we look at everything that's going on right in today's labor market with increasing uh, proliferation of, of, you know, HR laws, regulations, um, you know, you've got state and local mandates as well. They're very unique. And you couple that with the increasing geographic dispersion of the workforce, right? Uh, remote hybrid work, employees moving to other states. Those confluence of factors really create, in my mind, really an HR nightmare, right? For companies yeah. that have 20 employees that just are not prepared, right? Yeah. To to really meet those those demands. And and so, you know, that that was really what what got me to to really fall in love with the industry is I kind of looked at it as, okay, well, if I buy a plumbing company, if I buy you know, uh, an HVAC company or, or, or whatever it is, like it would be a no brainer from my perspective to use one of those one of these uh, HR outsourcing firms, you know, because it, it would give me the peace of mind, right. That we would be compliant with all applicable laws, regulations, and give our employees access to high quality benefits. I just fell in love with the value proposition. Right. And I really yeah. believed in it. And that's really the most, one of the most important boxes to check, right. Because as a searcher, it's unique, right. You're not just buying the business, you're going to run it. Right. And, and so for me, like I really had to have that staunch belief, right. in the, in the, in the value delivered, right. Uh, in this industry by this company. And, and it really checked that box uh, for me. And what about, I mean, you yourself exited staff one to a larger company, which then a year or so later exited to an even larger company, Paychecks, which is almost a household name in HR outsourcing. So so how fragmented does the industry remain? Or are there just these really big guys like how um, and, and compare it today to to when you started in 2008? That is it's a great question because you're you're right. You know, there there has been a wave of consolidation in the industry. Um, you know, if I think back in the last couple of years, there's been several new private equity backed platforms that that are are, are being acquisitive. And and so um at the same time, it's an industry that is a couple interesting dynamics to it. Like I would say the barriers to entry are moderate, right? They're not low per se, they're not extremely high, but I would say they're they're at a moderate level that still like for somebody that you know is is you know it's got you know the, the access to capital and the know-how and 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 the network and and the grit, you know, they can certainly start, right? And in mm-hmm. HR outsourcing uh PEO firm. Um but one one kind of factor that I that I want to call out here um, is that the barriers to scale, right? The barriers to thrive, I think, are actually very high, because what I've seen is there's a lot of lot of firms, and it's not just like emblematic of of this industry, right? I've seen this in other fragmented industries where you know to scale above you know one million in EBITDA, five million in revenue, it it requires 
like a, another level of investment or perhaps a different skill set um, that results in these firms essentially kind of plateauing, right? Okay. And there's nothing wrong. I mean, it's, it's nothing wrong with that because it can be a great, um, you know, they can build a great company. It can be a great lifestyle, right, for that owner. But as a result, you know, it's, it's just hard for them to kind of like get over that hump and get to the three to four, the five million EBITDA, you know, level. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's a dynamic that I've noticed in, in this HR outsourcing industry is that there are new ones that are starting, you know, I mean, I just read about one today. I mean, there's like, there's new ones starting, you know, every month. Right. <laughs> but, but ultimately, you know, there's, I think a good portion of those will grow. Um, but they may, you know, plateau at some point, which further than kind of leads to, you know, the, the fragmentation, you know, that we see in the sector. Um, and then they could, they in turn, you know, could be good targets for larger acquirers down the road. So tell us about staff one and, and what its numbers look like when you acquired it. And, you know, was it below that hump that you're talking about? And then did you get it beyond the hump of the, the 1 million EBITDA or 5 million in revenue? Can, can you share what can you yeah, share? There? And there's only some, yeah, thank you. I mean, there's only, of course, as you know, so much I can, I can share, but I think like from a top line perspective, um, you know, I would say at our at our low point in the in the early days, we we were doing right around I would say like just right around eighteen or so, you know, in uh, in net revenue. And then uh, when we got time to really you know uh, uh, look for potential suitors, right, to buy the business, we were just south of fifty million in revenue. So um, you know, had a good good nice run of 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 growth. I'd say about eighty to eighty five percent of that. Um, was organic growth, um, and about fifteen to twenty percent um, was a result of uh, inorganic growth. You know, a couple small tuck-ins, uh, you know, that we did towards the end. So. so eighteen million to fifty million over the course of about nine years. You you, you acquired it in two thousand eight and exited yeah. it at the end of twenty seventeen. That's correct. It wasn't. Uh, let me say this: it was not a certainly not a linear path uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to that. You know, it was a lot of you know, a um, lot of ups and downs and, 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 you know, particularly, you know, in the, in the first, in the, in the early innings, um, so to speak, but. Uh, can, can, can we dive into that a little bit? Sure. Mark, what, yeah. what were those first couple of years like? Cause you had mentioned that to me offline that your first couple of years in this seat were difficult. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, it's always, I mean, I think there's always challenges, right. At like any point, whether you're, you're starting, you're scaling, you're established. I mean, it's, I think there's just like different challenges, right. That present your, uh, uh, that are presented along the way. I think in my, my case, um, and listen, like the company that, that we bought, you know, it was a great company. Um, you know, I think like trying to really convert it and, and, um, uh, you know, kind of invent it into a growth platform required, um, I would say like, a, a, you know, some, some, you know, fairly extensive changes to the business, you know, from a, from a technology perspective, um, you know, from a, from a sales perspective, uh, you know, people perspective. And, uh, and so, you know, one of the, one of the, I think the big lessons I learned is, you know, I, I think in the, in the early days, um, I was a little too, too quick on the trigger to execute on you know some changes and and 
know, perhaps could have more intentionally kind of, you know, you know, thought about, you know, what changes to make and when, or maybe what changes not to make. Right. Because I think what, what's easy to forget sometimes is um, some of these smaller companies are, um, and there's a, there's a certain level of fragility to them. Mm -hmm. Right. If if you've got a company that has, you know, 25 employees, 10 employees, even 50 employees, right. Like um, there's just only so much like those companies can, can really handle adequately at once. And, and that's one of the big takeaways I learned was just to be more thoughtful about, you know, the, uh, the extent and the frequency of different initiatives and changes, you know, that, that I wanted to make. So. So you, you came in there really eager with your, your list of things to do and you started kind of knocking off the list and you just quickly bumped up against friction and, (laughs) and disorganization. No, I mean, I, I would say, um, I I don't know about like friction per se, but I mean, it was really just the, it, it takes a long time, right. To, to execute. Um, and to execute, you know, projects and, and initiatives, and it's on top of running and growing the day-to-day business. And um, I, I, you know, I think the capacity for, you know, a lower middle market company to absorb, you know, changes and to actually, you know, execute on on you know initiatives is it, it's not a you know, it's not an infinite capacity, right? So you have to be very, very strategic and disciplined about where you spend your resources. And that's really defined as, you know, uh, dollars, time, and and your staff, right? And if you can kind of figure out whatever that optimal formula is, um, then, you know, then you're onto something, right? But if you my point is, if you kind of overburden your resources with, you know, too many initiatives at once, it's gonna there's gonna be a disequilibrium there that, you know, is gonna uh, uh, result from that. Yeah, and in terms of the, I mean, this fragility, the the question of this fragility and, and the risk of buying a small business. What what did you see as the kind of what were you concerned going into the acquisition of Staff One would be the biggest fragility, the biggest risk really to you. And then after you acquired the business, did that turn out to in fact be the the the, the riskiest aspect of, of your ownership? And if not, what what was it? What were the the immediate challenges that you saw that maybe you didn't see before you got in there? Yeah, I mean a couple of things come to mind. So uh, one of them is um, you know, the timing of the acquisition, you know, was candidly not not ideal in that you know, it, it, it occurred essentially kind of in the, in the early days of, a, of, a, of the middle of a recession. And, you know, with having a client base of, you know, small and medium-sized companies with, you know, an average client or employee count of, you know, 22 employees, um, the, the concern was, well, you know, how long will this recession last and how severely impacted Will the client base be? The interesting thing is, we didn't have. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say we had a material amount or percentage of clients that went out of business. We had a lot that that you know were were basically you know leveraging the recession to to save some dollars, right, yeah. and to renegotiate yeah. rates and pricing with us. And so we that was the bigger 
um, really the, 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 the bigger challenge for us was that margin erosion that, that we saw. And it was, it was kind of a case of a, you know, a bird in the hand, so to speak, where, you know, do you really want to lose a client where they could, you know, perhaps go to just a payroll company and save some dollars? Yeah. Or do you want to keep this client and, 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 you know, we frequently chose the latter, right. And just kind of take that hit on the margin and, and try to keep that client for, for, uh, you know, as long as we could, you know, the other risk, um, you know, was on the technology side and, um, we had a, uh, it wasn't our own technology, but we had a license to, uh, to, a, a, a technology platform that we provided to our clients, uh, you know, payroll and HR technology platform. Um, you know, the thought was that, okay, we, we really need to upgrade this platform, right. To provide our clients with just a higher level experience and for us to operate more efficiently internally. And, you know, certainly on paper, it was the right decision. And I think it really, I think, worked out well for us and for our clients. However, the extent of that, like that project and the migration um, was it, it definitely like took longer to execute than I had anticipated. And the interesting thing is, even though the vast majority of clients saw this as a positive change, there were still some that you know, despite the improvements, they they appreciated the old platform because it was a process and it was something that they were comfortable with. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and so the, what that said to me was sometimes even if there's a, a change that, you know, we think is going to you know add value and be positive. You know, not every single client is going to have that that same view. Right. Sure. So so, you know, just you know, be prepared for. Um, you know, perhaps some some attrition challenges, even if you're going to make, you know, sometimes what you deem to be, you know, a positive change. But I mean, I'll just off the top of my head, I mean, like those those two were definitely the, um, you know, the bigger challenges, you know, that we uh, dealt with among others. Let's pivot a little bit now, Mark, to to your perch as an investor today. So I assume you're talking to searchers and and kind of getting a window into um, a lot of these these search processes. Is there anything that you would tell people um, that you, you see come up commonly that maybe they're approaching in the wrong way or could be doing better? Anything, any generalized advice for people who are considering buying a company out there? Sure. Um, just in terms of the search process? Anything you got, but sure, we can start with search process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I will say this. I've, I've been actually very impressed with what I've seen um, from searchers today in terms of, um, you know, what, kind of what you alluded to in the beginning, you know, the, the playbook. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely more, um, more structured today in terms of how you utilize your interns, how you source deals, how you scrape lists. I mean, obviously, technology tools available today um, are far more effective than, you know, when I think when I was searching. So yeah. um, I've actually been super impressed with, with um, the ability of searchers, you know, to, to really effectively source, source deals. I think the, the lesson to really impart is that, and this is, you know, really one of the biggest advantages, right. Of being a search funder is that at the end of the day, um, 
you know, you're, you're buying a business, right. From another human being. Right. And so, you know, and, and changes are that that seller has never sold a business before. And so it's, it's so, so critical to, to establish like that strong relationship and rapport and trust upfront, right. With that seller. So despite, you know, all of the, the deal sourcing machines and the technology tools and all that and zoom and all the stuff that exists today, which has been fantastic from an efficiency perspective, you know, at the end of the day, the most critical thing in the early days of a transaction, like I said, is really to establish, you know, that trust and that yeah. relationship with that seller. And I think the searchers that have, that have, you know, proceeded to, I think, you know, uh, acquire companies and, and um, you know, and, and, you know, do well and, and have been able to kind of keep that lesson in mind as they come across deals and, and sellers. So. And so do you, do you encounter searchers, the ones who don't do this well a lot, who, who, who maybe just treat it very transactionally or, or, or don't take the time to build rapport? I mean, is this a common, a common misstep among searchers? No, I mean, I think um, it's, it, I think it, it evolves. I think this, that skill set evolves like during the search. And so perhaps at the beginning of the search, um, there's really a natural drive or rush to get deal flow yeah, and, and to get at bats and to see what you like, see what you don't like. Um, which reminds me, that's another lesson I want to uh, make sure I mention at the end of this. Um, but I feel like the searcher, like over time through those at bats, like gets to appreciate the human element of the acquisition process. And as a result, learns that, hey, you know, one of the ways like I'm gonna set myself apart here is the fact that, you know, I'm not just buying the business, right? But, you know, I'm I'm the succession plan, you know, for yeah. this, for the seller and really, really hones in on that that factor. You know, the other um lesson real quick is is, and this is a hard one to avoid, um, admittedly, and the mistake, you know, I, I most certainly made. Mm-hmm. is that it's really easy to spend too much time on a deal that you're really never going to do. Um, and, and again, like that's, it's easy for us, right. To like sit around a table and say, yeah, well, it's this mistake, you know, that everybody makes, but it's, it's one of those things that like, you kind of have to like, you know, you realize it certainly after you do it once, you know, you, you realize it, um, you know, and I think like searchers have, have you know done a better job of just you know running deals you know by by their investors you know a little earlier in the process just to kind of vet vet out interest see if they're missing anything um, but like I said it's it's a it's a really easy mistake to make particularly in the early days right of of searching and Mark what do you mean like what what do you mean I'm 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 interested I'm looking at this deal I'm investing time but I should know that I'm not actually going to do it why should I know that. Um, what I really mean is, so if, if you know, there's a, there's a deal, say, you know, it, it looks, I mean, it's a, it's a, not maybe a hot industry, right. And companies growing, maybe the valuation perhaps could be on the higher side, right. Of, of things. And, 
but you know, there's, it's a really exciting deal. Right. And so there's a natural, like, you know, kind of curiosity and, and really interest, right. To, to delve in further, put out an indication, maybe even put out an LOI. Right. But what I'm saying is if, is if, you know, a deal like that isn't really properly like kind of soft circled with, you know, some, some investors, then, you know, unfortunately, I mean, there could be a situation where, you know, the, the deal gets under LOI and there's more time spent, but ultimately there, there's a challenge, right? Just kind of ultimately raising, you know, whether it's the debt or, or the equity. So that, that's really my point is just ensuring that there's, there's at least, you know, some minimal, you know, some level of support, right, from the capital sources before you like really, really kind of dive in and get under exclusivity and certainly before, you know, you start you know, engaging any third-party advisors. Okay. So take, take a deal to your investors sooner than, maybe sooner than later. There's a sweet spot, like of, of too late yeah, exactly. where you've over-invested time. And then of course, there's also too early, but it sounds like you see searchers err on the side of doing it a little too late. You'd like to see them do it earlier because you've seen instances where investors are like, look, this, I just, for whatever reason, this isn't for me. I can't, I can't fund this. That's right. That's right. And speaking of investors saying no, thank you, uh, is there are there any criteria that you can lay out for what you look for in a deal or in a searcher, uh, or things that would be deal breakers? Any anything anything there to you know? Searchers are always like to see inside the minds of investors. So anything there you might want to share? Yeah, I mean on the deals, um, you know, I think I think we always look at things um, such as you know revenue consistency. Um, you know, if there's too much customer concentration, um, you know, basically any, any like areas of significant risk, right. That cannot be properly planned for or mitigated. Um, you know, uh, the people, the quality of the team, right. Um, that's sometimes like a, a tough one to ascertain, but, uh, um, you know, the roles of the sellers, you know, afterwards, how important is the seller to the business? Um, and then, you know, looking at, you know, the industry dynamics, you know, are there tailwinds or are there headwinds and, yep. and, and really getting a, a good, good grasp of that. Um, I think, you know, and a good segue to the searcher, you know, trying to ascertain and, and assess, you know, the fit, um, you know, between the, the company, you know, and, and the searcher. Um, and, and, uh, the level of conviction, you know, that the searcher has, um, you know, about, uh, about the transaction, you know, the quality of the relationship that the searcher has been able to build with the seller throughout the whole mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. um, just off the top, man, I mean, those are, those are really important factors, you know, to, uh, to, to vet. Um, and then, um, you know, lastly, I would say, really understanding the assumptions that drive the base case and the model. Um, you know, what are those like pop, kind of bottoms up assumptions that are going to drive revenue and, you know, how, how does that kind of line up with historical performance? Um, you know, really just getting a, the, the best understanding you can about the, the kind of the, the ability and the probability of executing, uh, executing to the, to the base case. When you were 
taking your Staff One deal around to investors in 2008. I don't think you had any HR experience. What, what was it that you used to convince um, your investors that there was good searcher searcher business fit, searcher acquisition fit there? Was it just your conviction, like you, you laid out for me earlier, your conviction in HR outsourcing and, and how enthusiastic you had become about that opportunity in industry? I mean, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I think the, the conviction helped. I mean, I think the, the senior team at the time had been in place for, they had, they had really strong tenure um, at the business. And so, you know, the, the thought, you know, was to really kind of leverage that senior team, right. To, to, you know, help grow the business. Um, you know, the business, it's interesting. Like, theoretically, it's a very simple business, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you're, you're basically processing payroll, you're providing, you know, HR compliance support, you're providing, you know, employee benefits and administration. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say operationally, it can be actually a fairly complex business, right? Um, and and so I think, like, for, for folks coming into this space, as a generalist, right, like without really having any background, you know, the natural, like it was natural to kind of navigate towards things like strategy, sales, marketing, um, you know, things like that, that could really, you know, help drive the business and then, you know, learn the best you can, the nuts and bolts of the operation, but really kind of leverage, you know, the management team, you know, to, to continue to, you know, manage and execute on you know the day-to-day aspects of the operation. Mark, for anybody out there looking to uh, pursue an acquisition via search fund, how can they get in touch with you if they have questions or, or might maybe want to bring you in on, on a deal? Is that, is that something that you're open to people reaching out to you about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my business partner, um, his name is Matt Zucker. And, um, and so you know, we, we both uh, have an entity that we you know, invest in search funds. So you can reach out to any any one of us. Uh, so uh, Matt's email is uh, matt at etaequity.com. Um, and you can also reach out to me as well at uh, mark at etaequity.com. So. And in your website, is there a website at etaequity.com that people can brush up on before they reach out? Yes, yes. Great, great. Cool, etaequity.com, everybody. Mark, this has been great. Thank you very much for uh, sharing your insights as an investor and, and a successful searcher. Thanks, Will. Appreciate it. 